My name's Francisca Monahan, and you're listening to the Emerald Podcast Network. The host read these words for the audience, and when she finished, she turned to the subject of my body, although she did not mention it specifically. But by now, I am accustomed to intelligent people asking about the condition of my body without realizing the nature of their request. Specifically, the host wished to know why I felt that white America's progress, or rather the progress of those Americans who believe that they are white, was built on looting and violence. Hearing this, I felt an old and indistinct sadness roll up in me. The answer to this question is the record of the believers themselves. The answer is American history. Welcome to the Emerald Podcast Network. My name is Alec Cowan, and I'm a political columnist and the opinion editor for the Daily Emerald. Today's episode of the Emerald Political Podcast is Reflections, the Coates Story. I'll be taking ta Coates' book, Between the World and Me, which has flooded the eyes and ears of students all over the University of Oregon, and looking at the world it could leave in its wake. Who is ta Coates, and who is he to us? Most importantly, what does he tell us about ourselves? You'll want to keep listening. So, a little about me. I read the book this year and loved it. For those of you who haven't read it, Coates formats the book as a letter to his 15-year-old son. If you look at the common reading materials, this is referred to as the conversation, where parents of color tell their children about what to expect in the world, how their race will affect their lives, how it's affected their own lives. The book paints a picture that really criticizes a lot. His upbringing, the government, the history and attitudes of race in this country— It follows Coates' own journey through the streets of Baltimore to Howard University and lands on his life as it is now, covering the matters of race in the country as a journalist. For me, it's powerful. His language is at once eloquent and demanding. He really attempts to leave no stone unturned in understanding his life and his world, and he isn't afraid to call out the entire nation. It's a deeply personal story that resonates perfectly with our climate right now. Published in July 2015, Between the World and Me was immediately on a powerful trajectory. It won the National Book Award on November 18, 2015, and topped the New York Times bestseller list in January 2016. It sold well over a million copies, and it has been hailed in a number of ways. The British publication The Observer, The New York Times, The LA Times, they've all published glowing reviews on the book and just how important it is, even claiming it's as essential as air or water. And so, its popularity in our own nation's racial atmosphere, coupled with its vivid and powerful content, found itself in the conversation for this year's UO Common Reading Book. Ms. Kaplan told me that the program originally came from a student in the Honors College, and the school gradually added on all incoming freshmen. For Between the World and Me specifically, a lot of classes have already been using it. Generally, there's a lot of interest in both the author and the book across campus. The process begins with a committee, which solicit ideas for a book. Even though technically it's for first-year students, our dream is that it's for everybody. In our, mm-hmm. on our campus community, which is actually a really, it's a, it's a big challenge to figure out what you think all first-year students should read. I mean, it's hard to know, you know, there's so many topics yeah. that you could be <laughs> choosing from. You want to know what will they read on their own in the summer, what issues are the issues that are important now, mm-hmm. style of work. So it's a lot of people from, that you don't know much about. <laughs> yeah, and somebody might really love this book and someone else might not. And they've had books in the past which haven't quite hit their target, but they keep faculty and students in mind when selecting books. Between the World and Me was really the, the top pick of the committee. Mm-hmm. So just hands down, it was literature. Yeah. It was important. <laughs> it was worth, worth reading. Mm-hmm. So we were pretty unanimous in knowing that it would be a challenging book as well, mm-hmm. but also an important book to do. I asked Ms. Kaplan if she foresaw any problems with the book. 
she was undeniably positive. And one of the tricks is to be comfortable in sitting with questions. Yeah, yeah. And that's really, I mean, he asks, he asks you to keep asking questions, to, to keep, you know, keep digging into things, yeah, asking questions, yeah. and then learning to be comfortable with not knowing, not having answers, which can be really hard for students, for all of mm-hmm. us. Yeah. But in some ways, there aren't answers in the book. There are a lot of questions, and that's something that we all need to work with. So I think it's hard. Yeah. We know it's hard. <laughs> The, the book is a hard book, mm-hmm. but also that doesn't, we don't want to stop. We don't want to not do it because mm-hmm. it's hard. We think it's important and it's hard. Yeah. And so, so we're doing it. It seems perfect, even with its problems and reservations. The book has widely educational content matter. It's easily considered a staple of contemporary literature. In light of Black Lives Matter and our current climate, this is its moment. But as it turns out, Coates has had a difficult time internalizing its success. A lot of the discussion about it focuses on what it means to write a book, to have it jettison from you to the public, and to not be able to wrangle it back in. Once the book is out there, it's out there. Blemishes. Criticisms. It stays detached from you, but will still indelibly hold your name on it. Not delicately, but forcefully. And one thing that Coates has grappled with is its popularity and adoption by certain audiences. These audiences are, most often... White. There are serious problems with this. But after hearing this interview, there was one thing sticking out in my mind. White readers everywhere were reading this and accepting it as their one gateway book. It got them into the race conversation and was weaponized used to an argument about proving systematic racism and why race matters and claim racial expertise. The constant attention and looks for approval have been nagging at Coates, and you see it everywhere. It's not hard to find Coates and his book referenced in popular culture, whether it's in the hands of a white girl on Saturday Night Live's The Bubble skit. The Bubble is a diverse community and safe space for everyone. We don't see color here, but we celebrate it or in articles as White America's Only Black Friend. He's become the new standard. So then how is U of O, which is 60% white, with African American students representing only 2% of the enrolled population, along with 13% of faculty of color, fitting into this story? How did we as a school reject this pattern? Or how did Between the World and Me become a symbol, a token? I I think it raises an interesting questions about in a climate where, you know, 95% of this curriculum at our institution just refuses engagements with race. Mm-hmm. So what is, what's the quality of those texts that actually kind of push through that? Bring people and, in the door. Yeah, and I don't think, you know, I'm not saying, well, it's com- because, because of its popularity, it means it's complicit in these different ways. Yeah. But I do think it raises the question of kind of like, why this text and not others? Why this text and not others? If you go back to the Common Reading Program's recommendations, you see tons of articles tackling Oregon's problematic history with race. The statistics regarding our composition, they're outlined in these neatly packaged articles on the website. Why aren't there black people in Oregon? The Mims House Memorial Monument dedication speech. Untold stories, black history at the University of Oregon. There are references to the Mims House, which I just read, and which was the first house that a family of color was actually allowed to live in inside the Eugene city limits. This crusade to diversify Oregon has been here for a long time, long before it was trendy. So where is Between the World and Me in this quest? You know, there is something about, I think a couple of things. One is like, 
how readers and students especially will locate themselves in relation to the text and do they just imagine the Baltimore that he writes about is just a faraway place mm-hmm. or are they kind of imbricated in it and in some of Coates' address um, he tries to imbricate the reader in it to say that we're you know we're <laughs> we have these relationships that need to be unearthed and then I think the second question is you know that some of the forms of like dispossession of violence he's talking about they're not specific to not just Baltimore or black communities or communities of color. Mm-hmm. They're becoming, in some ways, many more familiar even to like working-class white communities, mm-hmm. rural dispossessed white communities. This was crucial to Dr. Hosang's message, connections. How do we see ourselves within the novel? So that would be another connection, I think, unanticipated that we might think about, mm-hmm. which is like when he's kind of like talking about those feelings, about how it feels to circulate in a place that's marked for... Uh, kind of violence and abandonment. Mm-hmm. Um, what? What? How does that cause you to see the world, mm-hmm. and not as some you know very narrow like um, in cultural terms? But there's you know one could think about it how it operates in other countries mm-hmm. and things. Yeah. So I guess I'm saying in the same way that I don't know you take a like a you can read a text by Shakespeare or Melville that's set in a particular time, mm-hmm. and the whole project of it is thinking about connections, mm-hmm. right? What does it reveal to us about our shared humanity? Ourself, yeah. And so what, what might it mean to do that with this text rather than mm-hmm. to bracketing it off and say it's just about a, it's like a subfield thing. But what does it say about like, you know, like yeah. the nation as a whole? I understood it all. Perhaps the best way to understand the book's success is its accessibility for all audiences. But there's still the nagging problem that it's the only experience many people get. It's co-opted to be the token book of today. So how do we get past that? How do we do Coates justice? Take ethnic studies classes, because those are, I mean, really, they're kind of meant for that, like more sustained um, considerations of these questions. And then there's obviously lots of organizations, the Multicultural Center, lots of programming on campus. But I think part of, you know, like the... you know, and Baldwin does this as well, which is like, none of us are innocent. All of us have an, all of us played a role in this. And that, you know, the implication there is that all of us have an obligation to to not disavow and to think critically and to think seriously. And with the black faces at our campus, um, you know, with the continued like marginalization uh, and, you know, struggles with black students and faculty, Mm -hmm. it's like everybody has to kind of take this on. Yeah. That's a question. So it's not, yeah. So I, I think that would be the best. And not to do it in a way where, you know, you're operating from a place of, like, anxiety, fear, and guilt, but a feeling of, like, here's, a, like, a, a, a calling about obligation and mutuality um, and possibility mm-hmm. um, that he's speaking to that he would, you know, urge readers to consider. So what now? In speaking with Dr. Ho saying, I felt a skeptical optimism. Something unseen saying that between the world and me was there to ask the questions, but not provide all the answers. But then I looked at the university, and I saw a history. On the one hand, there are President Michael Schill's promising words for diversity. There were the protests in the wake of Donald Trump's election claiming to fight against racism, misogyny, and xenophobia. But on the other, there's the name Dee Dee Hall and its problematic heritage standing unfazed. There's philosophy professor Dr. Naomi Zak's ringing critique of the UO's lack of diversity during her acceptance of the MLK Award, which is really worth looking up and seeing. And which a year later hasn't seen much improvement. There's not one, but two instances of blackface perpetrated by a professor and high school students. In the end, the university is met with a tide of actions, some of which are genuine and some of which are really just symbolic. 
But one cannot be discussed without the other. This is a campus that claims to want progress, but which so many times settles for diversity without a difference. So I want to bring it back to the Mims house. Just to remind you, it's the first house for people of color allowed within Eugene city limits. The more I've thought on coats in this campus, the more I've come back to this idea of history. Oregon's 1859 state constitution forbade any African Americans from settling within the state of Oregon. Oregon had revoked the ratification of the 14th and 15th amendments until 1959. It wasn't until 1926 that African Americans were even allowed to live within the state of Oregon. It took the efforts of Mr. Joe Early, who was a white man, to allow the first family of color, who were named the Mims, to even live within Eugene. After his efforts, the more and more allies began to form and saved the community living, as it was called, across the river. Lisa Ponder, who spoke at the Mims House's dedication, put it perfectly when she said this. Quote, For me, this memorial is a big reminder that our choices have ripples. A reminder of one white man whose choices had impacts still felt here in Eugene. A reminder that all our lives are interconnected. Most fundamentally, this monument holds up for me the example of respect, courtesy, courage, fortitude, and human dignity exemplified by the story of the Mims family and the others who had to live across the bridge, who are set down into this world at this place and time, end quote. My mom and my dad would be smiling somewhere in heaven to see that we carried on. What they started, we carried on. It might not be all finished, but it's more finished. And they have that monument there. I'm hoping that even after our time, since all our children, grandchildren are away, but I'm hoping some way or another that the spirit of that, of that monument will carry on years and years and generation after us. That was a descendant of the Mims looking courageously into the future. The tokenization that has followed ta has always been around. But within the swath of readers, some go further. They pick up other literatures, other doctrines. They take the classes and devote themselves to being more than they're expected to, and all bets are off once the die is cast. With 25,000 students reading this novel, there are going to be mixed reactions. Some people aren't going to listen and say that we live in the post-race age, or that he's being overly dramatic and making a victim of himself. Some people will take racist jabs at it. But the best we can do is put it out there and let them decide, because if anything, the city has shown that it can handle it. One person is all that's needed. If you haven't seen it, the Mims House is an old-fashioned, symmetrical white house with blue trim. It's impressively small. It's renovated and preserved, painted perfectly and sanitized. But to say that it stood the Oregon torrents and not cracked, not broken, is to be disingenuous. But it's here, a piece of history that people walk by unknowingly. The original owners crashed into a world that may have reluctantly accepted them. But they may have also entered a world where some rose from the crowds and welcomed them with open arms. That house stands as a reminder that progress is tough and it is fought for one crowning moment at a time. Perhaps Between the World and Me is another one of these moments that is trying to build a bridge between worlds. Baltimore is Oregon, both for people of color and white students. 
Coates is forcing us to ask questions about who we are and what we are. At the end of the day, all I'm really left with are the questions. I can't sit down with every student who has read the book and get their input. All I can look for is the signs, the changing statistics and student demographics and increase in faculty of color, the scaffolding and public addresses about the fulfillment of demands, the voices raised in the streets and that speak to equity because to live without it is to not live at all. As a reader of the book, I'm forced to look at the efforts made by the university to put the world at our fingertips, to unearth old evils so we can cope with them, to make any form of progress we have to admit what parts of us are parts of Baltimore, what parts of us are parts of Eugene throughout history. I still don't have a boundless optimism for students in the book. I'm skeptical, but that means I'm questioning. I'm trying, and that's all I can ask for all of us to do. To continue to build bridges between the world and us. I want to thank Dr. Daniel Hosang and Sharon Kaplan for taking the time to meet with me. Their voices added a lot of depth to this story, and I couldn't have done it without them. Music on today's podcast is Rooftops by R.I. De Niro, Ignorance is Bliss by Minzy and Wrinkle, Big Apple by Scott Holmes, and Output by Costa T. Thanks for listening.